this week on the Backtable Podcast. I think back to when I was in college, one of my mentors told me, hey, listen, when, when you want to get married, don't, don't go look for a wife. Look to see who's running at your side towards the same vision, and that's the person you partner with. And, and I would say the same thing in these programs is to look and see who shares your vision, both locally and then, like we've been discussing, uh, nationally at other centers, and, and run together and build collaboratively. There's plenty of room for everyone to work in a very collaborative fashion. Welcome back to the Backtable ENT podcast. Here we bring you conversations with the best and brightest minds in the field of otolaryngology with the hope that you can take this information and apply it to your practice. Hey everyone, really exciting news. Our listeners asked and we have answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on the episode pages at backtable.com or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend at a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Again, this helps support the show and allows us to keep bringing you great content. Now on with the episode. I'm your host, Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist at UT Southwestern here at Dallas Children's. We have a very special podcast today on building centers of excellence for pediatric head and neck tumors. We have an all-star panel today, Dr. Anthony Shane, Dr. Daniel Chilius, and Dr. Jeff Rastatter. Dr. Anthony Shane is an associate professor in otolaryngology at the University of Tennessee, Memphis at La Bonaire Children's Hospital. Dr. Shane is also the chief of ENT at St. Jude's Hospital, leading the pediatric head and neck cancer team. Dr. Daniel Chilius is an associate professor in otolaryngology at Baylor College of Medicine, leading a high-volume multidisciplinary pediatric head and neck team at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Dr. Chilius is also the program coordinator for the American Academy of Otolaryngology annual meeting for 2020 to 2024. Dr. Jeff Restatter is an associate professor in otolaryngology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and leads the pediatric head, neck, and skull-based team at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. He's a member of ASPO, American Thyroid Association, North American Skull Base, and the Children's Oncology Group, and recently won an Outstanding Teaching Award. All three are members of the American Head, Neck Society and on the Pediatric Endocrine Committee, of which Dr. Restatter uh, co-chairs. Welcome to the show, everyone. How is everybody feeling? Great. Thanks Great. for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Um, if you want, we could first just go around and um, you can tell us a little bit about yourselves and your practice. Tony, do you want to start? Sure. Um, so I came to Memphis um, straight out of UT Southwestern's Excellent Pediatric ENT Fellowship. And uh, there was a little bit of a vacuum at St. Jude. And uh, based on my fellowship and practice interests, I decided to fill that vacuum and with the resource right over there, we've been able to build a pretty large uh, pediatric head and neck uh, cancer program. Uh, a lot of what we do is thyroids, but we're also expanding to salivary gland tumors. Jeff, Danny, and I are actually working with the majority of the children's hospitals in France on developing um, salivary gland uh, studies, eventually hoping for prospective um, uh, trials. And uh, I hooked up with Jeff and Danny about, was it three, four years ago? 
that I came up to them after a, a talk at a cannery and said, Hey guys, can I join you? And <laughs> they've, they've been uh, great mentors and have become great friends. And, uh, we do quite a bit of work together now because doing this stuff by yourself can be quite challenging and quite lonely. Well, you know, and, and that's actually interesting too, probably just starting off our conversation, but I remember when, when Tony came, came to, to, to meet us in an academy meeting, cause it was Danny and I giving a talk and this shows kind of the growth and development of pediatric head neck too, because Tony was one of, I, I think we had, uh, it was either standing room only, or we had seven people in the audience. It was one of the two. Right. But, uh, so remember that one, Danny? Oh yeah. Because some of this, the whole concept of pediatric head and neck, it used to be when, when, when Danny and I first started talking about this uh, years ago, we had some people go, what, what do you mean by pediatric head and neck? What is pediatric head and neck? Do you mean like brachial cleft cysts and so on? And we're like, no, we're talking a little bit more about focusing on malignancies. Kind of like we think about our adult colleagues with head and head neck and they focus on the, on the malignancies and then, um, the, and, and building those uh, practices and centers of excellence and starting to do that with, with pediatrics. So it's interesting how when Danny and I started giving talks, there were very few people in the audience. But over the last years, we've had a lot of growth in, uh, in interest. And we're now starting to see, see folks like my current uh, fellow right now, who, uh, Diane, who actually came from Texas Children's, she's done two fellowships. So she's doing a pediatric photolaryngology fellowship with us in Chicago. And, uh, and she did uh, her head and neck fellowship in Indiana. So, so we're seeing a lot of, a lot of folks who are getting more and more interest in this area and starting to back that up with uh, additional training. So it's going to be really interesting to see where this, this, uh, this field goes moving forward, but not to sidetrack the, uh, the introductions. I, I think you introduced me, me very well, but I can just, just say that I, I joined Lurie, Lurie Children's, which uh, it used to be Children's Memorial Hospital. We changed our name in 2012. We're affiliated with uh, academic affiliation with Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and I've been there since. I completed my fellowship at Children's Memorial Hospital in 2009. And prior to that, I was at, at Ohio State University, who, who has had a long uh, history with outstanding uh, head and neck surgery on both the adult and pediatric side, which is sort of where my interest in the field uh, began. I had a bit of a different path into the field. I did my fellowship in Kansas City at Children's Mercy and was interested in, in pediatric cancer care there and was working in uh, that job. But my family needed to come back to Houston. And uh, at the time, I took a position in private practice with a really fine group of, of uh, otolaryngologists uh, here in town. And they were incredible mentors. And, and one of them in particular, Chris Pritchard, really advanced my skills as an attending surgeon in thyroid surgery and in sort of general adult head and neck surgery, the kind that you would see in, in sort of a community otolaryngology setting. And uh, after building a sort of a secondary pediatric private practice for a few years and continuing to develop my adult head and neck skills, uh, Texas Children's recruited me to join them to build a pediatric head and neck tumor program here. And I'll never forget the day I sat with my, my former division chief, Dr. Ellis Argemon, and he was telling me that he wanted me to come do this. Felt like Christmas morning because nobody Nobody believes that that's actually possible. I mean, it's a dream I think a lot of us have going into, into pediatric otolaryngology. And I, I couldn't believe that Texas Children's uh, had that same vision and the support and was willing to help mentor me into this role. But like Tony said, it was a little bit lonely for a, a little while until I found my mentors in Michael Kupferman and Randy Weber from MD Anderson, uh, who helped uh, mentor and really became my original partners in the program. And then I was at the American Academy of Otolaryngology meeting 
uh, I think it was 2016, and I was at a committee meeting with this guy, Urjit Patel from uh, Northwestern. And Urjit heard me talking about pediatric head and neck, and he said, oh, you got to come meet my friend, Jeff. He said, Jeff and I, are, we have the same vision. We're, this is what we're trying to do in, in Chicago. You got to come meet Jeff. And I think I met Jeff 10 minutes later. And uh, I think that was one of the most important, pivotal moments of my career was meeting Jeff. And, you know, I mean, I, we're wonderful friends, and I think the friendship is, is, is the foundation of it. But it has been such an important thing to have like-minded colleagues with a shared vision to move our programs forward. And then when, when Tony came along, and we got to know Tony. I think I can speak for Jeff and I. We were kind of like, who's this wunderkind over <laughs> at uh, St. Jude? He's a few years younger than us. And he's just, you know, just taking the head, PD head and neck world by storm. It's incredible. And I got back to Houston. And uh, a couple months later, one of my mentors came to me and she said, listen, you got to meet this guy. I met him at the trio meeting. He's incredible. He'd be a good mentor for you. His name's Tony Shane. <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, I, I know Tony. <laughs> But it really spoke to the incredible work that he already had cooking uh, there in uh, in Memphis. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think that um, finding the the like minded folks has has been part of this whole whole journey. I you know I, I mentioned Ohio State as a as a uh, part of my development of my interest in, in head and neck, but really during my fellowship too. I, when I went into pediatric otolaryngology, I knew I, I liked head and neck surgery, but I didn't really have a great concept of what pediatric head and neck was. And one of my uh, current partners now and and uh, fellowship mentors and still a mentor today, John Matalozo started. He started kind of thinking about the concept of pediatric head and neck years and years ago, and he's really kind of developed that in in Chicago. And Chicago is one of the at Lurie Children's was one of the early adopters for kind of having sub sub specializations within pediatric otolaryngology. Like in some senses, like if you ask someone, well, what is a what is a pediatric kind of otolaryngologist, and and that may mean different things to 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 different uh, to different folks. But in in Chicago, a long time ago, even like twenty years ago, Lauren Hollinger, who's now retired, was sort of like the airway guy, so to speak. And Nancy Young took on all the challenging years and really developed a world class cochlear implant program. And John Metalozo started taking on a lot of the the head neck. So. When I was a fellow there, I was like, oh, oh, interesting. So you can kind of be a pediatric uh, head and neck surgeon. So I saw his practice and I started to believe it myself that it was possible. And then we've worked together to continue to build that program in Chicago. And that's sort of where, where it started for me. Yeah. So you guys have each touched on sort of either having had experience uh, in the adult head and neck world to, you know, is that giving talks at meetings and there was, you know, a handful of people to now there's the room is filled. What are the nuances or the differences or what describe your pediatric head neck practice and how is it different um, than adults? I, I think it really uh, starts in the relationship with oncology to some degree because the, the oncologic world for children is very different than the oncologic world for adults in, in otolaryngology. The diseases are completely different. Uh, the treatment paradigms are very different. And I, I think that having a healthy understanding of that, which means a healthy collaboration with pediatric oncology, is, is a big starting point. I think that we would all say there are technical aspects to the surgeries that are subtly different in some ways. But I, I think that from the get-go, the diseases are very different. And because they're rare, because they are not being seen at any single center in huge volumes, I think it takes uh, the it takes having 
an appreciation for what else is out there in community uh, as far as what your colleagues are doing. And that's how you can develop experience with these diseases. I, I don't think that any one center alone can go at it in Pete's head and neck world uh, in, in isolation. It's pretty standard of care for adult head and neck to have run everything through a multidisciplinary team. That has not necessarily been the case for pediatric uh, head and neck cancer care. The tumor boards, uh, sometimes the kids in my residency, they were presented an adult tumor board, which is not yet get a multidisciplinary team, but they're not really pediatric specialists. And what Danny, Jeff, and I have um, and have developed is multidisciplinary teams, tumor boards to discuss all these cases and develop the best treatments as a team for them. Unfortunately, I say Duke kind of serves as a referral center. We have some primary patients because of our catchment area, but a lot of our patients come from uh, all over the country and all over the world that have had other treatments. So I see what can happen if there's like a one person show for a lot of these cases. And then we have to discuss and figure out the appropriate treatment together. And I think that that's been like Danny mentioned, Randy Weber, he was actually a big supporter when we presented at Academy a couple of years ago on developing these multidisciplinary teams instead of going at it alone. When I first got here, the first case I ever did was a thyroidectomy and I kind of did it by myself because I talked to the oncologist, but there was no tumor board available for thyroid tumors at that time. Um, they all ran through solid tumors and I just, I just, that is a thyroid needs to come out. I'll take it out. And everything went very, very well with that, uh, patient. But fortunately, uh, uh, I have a lot of, um, contemporary colleagues over there who was like, Hey, maybe we should like set this up the right way. So we started presenting all the thyroid patients and our solid tumor board to the point to where we started getting so many referrals. We have to completely pull the thyroids out of solid tumors and develop our own tumor board for that. And I, I do that. I do zero work without presenting it through tumor board or without like, if I get a new page, I actually just got a new one on Friday. I'm, I'm gonna, before I do anything, I'm calling my oncologist on Monday. So we have to work as a team for this, just like we do for adults. That that's kind of been kind of what we've been pushing forward. Like, and really you, you should have centers of excellence for this, but there's no reason that the straight up thyroid tumor presents to a, um, a smaller hospital where you cannot meet together as a team and develop the appropriate treatment. I think one other thing I can say is, you know, the three of us have spoken about this, this a lot too, in terms of, so one of the, one of the first things that comes to my mind when you say, what are one of the, some of the differences between an adult uh, head and neck surgeon and a pediatric head and neck surgeon in the context we're talking about? And the first thing that comes to my mind is volume of disease. So it's something we've spoken a lot, a lot about, you know, at, uh, when I was in residency at Ohio State, there's several adult uh, head and neck surgeons dealing with several cancers every day, and they need multiple of them to, to handle that volume. And kids were talking about a lot lower volumes. So to what Tony was saying about the uh, physician, some of the patients that are coming into St. Jude's who have been operated or maybe treated by someone else, somewhere, uh, somewhere else kind of in a silo, it's not to be critical of that. It's like, that's really all we've had for a long time. We've had some very, you know, well-intentioned and good, you know, physicians managing, you know, uh, uh, some of these kids because it's sort of some of these, some of these tumors can feel like a one-off. 
But it's interesting as you start developing these programs, you realize they're not really one-offs. There's enough, there is enough volume to have uh, centers of excellence, but you do need to have exactly that centers of excellence where these kids can, can come because, you know, uh, Danny and I were talking about this just the other day that we feel like pediatric head and neck cancer care has gotten past the point where these one-off procedures are, are necessary. We've, we've built these programs where we can give the same level of, of care to kids that we give to adults. Because in, in a typical adult uh, setting, it would uh, not be the, the norm to, to manage like a, a squamous cell carcinoma of the larynx without involving tumor board and all of the other multidisciplinary services that come with there. So uh, we're at a, at a point where, that, where that's what we're trying to offer to the kids that have the uh, sarcomas and the kids that have the thyroid tumors and the kids that have the uh, salivary glands uh, yeah, tumors as well. I think to, to follow up on what Jeff just said, I, we don't see in the adult head and neck cancer world, super complicated, complex cancers being managed in places that don't already manage lots of cancers, right? That, that's not what happens anymore because we've developed so many multidisciplinary head and neck adult cancer teams. And, and I think that's really the point we are getting to in Pete's head and neck as well. And I, I think that there's really not room for, for needing to reinvent the wheel every time anymore like there, there may have been in, in years of past. This is sort of an era where good intentions aren't enough anymore. It's time for us to be building teams everywhere where there's volume to, to manage these things together. And it's a, it's a really hard thing to say up front that I'm going to do pediatric head and neck and I'm not going to do other aspects of pediatric otolaryngology so that my colleagues can develop their depth of experience in, in those subspecialty areas. But that was similar to what Jeff was describing in Chicago. That, that was the vision that uh, my, my former division chief had here at Texas Children's as we were setting up our subspecialty programs. And so I, I think focus and consistency is a key part of these programs as well. And uh, as well as multidisciplinary teams, we, we know in surgery, and there's more and more evidence coming out about you know, the, the volume versus outcomes that's been studied pretty extensively in uh, thyroid surgery in the, in the adults. Now, while it's hard to come up with a particular number, how many of a particular procedure do you need to maintain your, your proficiency at it? It might be a little bit different for different folks, just uh, uh, depending on different, different factors. But at the end of the day, I think we can all agree with uh, anything that's procedurally based, whether it's surgery or shooting free throws, the more you do, the better you get at. So, so you don't, you know, if it's the, uh, the playoffs you want, and in basketball, if someone gets fouled, there's certain people you want on the line shooting that free throw and certain ones you don't. There's, there's uh, uh, likewise with, uh, you know, with sur surgery too, trying to get the, the kids into the, the, the hands of folks that have the most volume. In Chicago, we... We do that not just with, with head and neck surgery. We have an airway team. We have a complex otology team. We have our, our head and neck and skull-based team that I'm a part of. Uh, we have a craniofacial team. I was on call on call this week and, and diagnosed a congenital subglottic uh, uh, stenosis uh, in a child. And despite my training, that's not the area of my focus now. I have, a, uh, I have several airway, airway colleagues that I move that patient along too to manage that and they route the uh the head and neck tumor kids towards me so setting up systems where you can have uh volume to improve your your, your volume uh, such that it you know, impacts outcomes i think is 
important when you're dealing with relatively low volume, complicated disease of which certainly pediatric head and neck would fit into. Tony, you mentioned your, your first case there was a thyroidectomy. Do you remember your first like complex resection that you did? Those started coming later. Yeah, it was actually an ossifying fibroma that I was able to do endoscopically of the maxillary sinus. I, I remember our first one was a, was a desmoid fibromatosis patient that we were taking care of here at Children's. We, we had had one patient before that had come that we did with our colleagues from MD Anderson. Uh, but the first one here was a child with desmoid fibromatosis. I'm still close to this family and love this kid. But I, I remember at the beginning of that case, because it was our first one, we had set up the whole team as well as we could. We had picked an OR coordinator who went to MD Anderson, reviewed all of their instruments, met with their OR teams, helped outfit the operating rooms exactly as needed. We had picked a plastic surgery coordinator to do the same. We had picked our scrub team. We had rehearsed the room. We had placed all the tables in the right spots. Um, we had met with the ICU team. We had had our multidisciplinary planning meeting. Basically, we planned and planned and planned and planned. I remember as we made the first incision, I remember this, you know, this bit of a pit feeling, ugly feeling in the pit of my stomach going into this first case about what we were embarking on. And, and I have to say one of the, the blessings of watching the program grow and watching our experience grow is that I don't have that ever anymore as we embark on these cases because I've seen the team at its work. I've seen my operative partners and myself. I've seen the work that can happen. We've managed the rare complications we've had and watched the kids come through it. And so I, I see children come in now for their initial consult and then I see the end of the road. I don't, it's, we're not launching into the unknown. And, and I think that has been uh, a mental shift over the last five, six years that has happened for many members of the program that, that facilitates the kids care a lot. So how do you build a program uh, for pediatric head and neck or, you know, and make it into a center of excellence? Who are the players and what, what are the important uh, elements to have? Jeff, you were, you led this. Tell us about it. Well, oh, oh, Danny, you're too kind. You're too kind. No, I, I mean, I, I think that um, I know some aspects we can, we can go with this, but I'll, I'll start right, right from you've got to have support for these centers of excellence within your own division, first and foremost. So meaning I am part of a group of 13 pediatric otolaryngologists. If we are going to build these programs, you have, you have to have pathways within within your group and understanding within your group that there is benefit to having certain folks manage certain diseases. And, and then you start to develop your aerodigestive program, your skull basin, head neck program, uh, your sinus program, craniofacial. If everyone wants to do everything, then none of these programs are possible. It really, there's, they're too complicated now. There's too there's too, too much in the way of treatment options, research out there to know everything about everything just doesn't, doesn't work anymore. So, so I would say that's the first part is just having uh, support within your group and having your division head have a, have a vision. My, my division head here at Lurie Children's, Dana Thompson, has a vision for this. Uh, she is part of the leadership of our aerodigestive program and really focuses uh, on that. And she is very supportive of myself and then uh, John Manalozo and Doug Johnson, my two partners within our head, neck, and skull-based program, focusing on on that. So that's that's the, the first part. Before you start getting into 
well, we're going to need an oncologist. We're going to need to die. So yeah, you need all those players for the team, but you've got to have that support uh, within your group and have that visit vision amongst your leadership of your division, the leadership of the department of surgery in the hospital uh, to, to have these centers of excellence. So I'll start, we'll start with that. And then uh, Tony, do you want to build on that? Again, I joined a group of seven and we are all relatively busy. So because of what we do was rare, I, I basically said, I will do like all the stuff. If you let me do like the stuff that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily, this was called pay the bills. So <laughs> and over time, I've been able to, to build that to where I've kind of sworn off a lot of the bread and butter stuff. And I, I gave up airways for the most part, I, I'll still do them on call or if something comes in during the day, just because we, we only do have seven faculty. And if, if I don't do it, I can't certainly cannot give it to one of our other six people because we are all relatively swamped. So I don't do any open airways. I'll, I'll tee them up. I'll like, I'll, I'll stabilize everything and pass off. So like Jeff said, you can't do everything. So also I'm very fortunate to have just really great support from my bosses. The, the chair of surgery at St. Jude, Andy Davidoff is a huge supporter. Um, of everything that we're all three of us are doing actually. And he's the one who suggested that we all join uh, the children's oncology group, which is uh, they run the vast majority of the pediatric cancer trials. And they, they've been very supportive of us as well. Um, and then he, Andy kind of pushes me and has been able to give me funds to help fund some of this research, uh, which we're utilizing. And then uh, Boyd Gillespie, my chair, has been very, very supportive and uh, a very, very big proponent kind of trumpeting this stuff around at the national meetings. I think, too, you, you have to have not only the support within your division, but you have to have the support of the head and neck community around you as well. I know there are some cities where that relationship between pediatric and adult care doesn't work as well. And I'm very, very fortunate to have had uh, adult head and neck surgical mentors, both at Anderson and then Dr. Donovan, Don Donovan, the chair at Baylor, who were supportive of the program and willing to lend their teaching and mentorship without the need to be the ones running the show, per se. And, and without that, it's sort of a non-starter. I think it's also important to have great relationships uh, with the, the related surgical specialties. I've been very blessed to have a pediatric plastic surgery partner in Dr. Ed Buchanan, who is the division chief of our pediatric plastics team. And he, he has uh, led the reconstructive efforts and been an incredible partner. I got a call recently from someone elsewhere who wanted to talk about doing a, a complex tumor at their center and how to get up and start it. And, and their, starting criteria, their starting assets were an adult head and neck partner who was comfortable helping them, but not with the reconstruction and a horrible relationships between otolaryngology and plastic surgery. Well, that's a non-starter. That's a non-starter for care. That's a non-starter for the program. And so I think, you know, we always used to say that chance favors a prepared mind. That was Louis Pasteur's comment. Uh, I heard my own mentor and chair, Bobby Alford, say it a million times. But, but I think actually in our current era, it chance favors a prepared community. You have to have a community that's ready to build this and, and then it can build. I think we also have to be honest about the fact that as pediatric otolaryngologists at the outset, we don't have the advanced head and neck skill set required for some of these cases. And all of us have had wonderful partners. Jeff mentioned his fellow Diane. Uh, Dr. Chen was our resident here at Texas Children's at Baylor and an incredible surgeon who did her dual fellowships. My partner here at Texas Children's now, Amy Demoshki, did the same, her pediatric otolaryngology fellowship and then a head and neck cancer fellowship at MD Anderson. 
And I think we're going to increasingly see that model coming along to bring expertise into the programs uh, so that there will be some of us mid and later career who have learned by time and experience under incredible mentorship, but more, more who will do the dual training and bring that into the programs in the future. Yeah, I think those are great examples and points in terms of collaboration. I don't do our pediatric head and neck, but I do our pediatric sinus and skull base. And I have to say, without the support and mentorship of my adult rhinology colleagues, you know, I would not be able to build my practice without partnering with our, you know, CF team, you know, for our CF kids or, you know, whoever it is um, within the community so that they know that there is somebody that is wanting to, you know, build this Um and I, I, I really think uh, the other key part is how do we work together in terms of other surgeons? And you touched on it and you talked about it, uh, Danny, about having a great relationship with your plastic surgeon. How about with your pediatric general surgeons? Because a lot of, you know, anywhere you go, sometimes there's, oh, well, the endocrine or the thyroid portion or whatnot, or even, you know, brachial cleft cysts, you know, depending on the referral patterns, is p- possibly with, you know, the pediatric general surgeons. Is there a partnership there? I would imagine probably yes. And how, how does that how does that work? I have a very unique, I think Jeff and Danny both know this. I actually do all my thyroids with a pediatric general surgeon, Regan Williams. Um, and all, we do our thyroids together. She's actually the director of the vascular anomalies clinic and got me into that as well. But over the years, we developed a great partnership and great friendship. But we actually went back and looked at our data and compared to national data, we have less complications. You know, one key uh, case actually illustrated that early on in our partnership, we had a very challenging thyroid cancer. We got, uh, actually wrote it through the trachea. So when we peeled it off, there was actually a giant hole in the trachea that I was able to repair pretty easily, but there was also uh, a vascular injury too that she was able to repair pretty easily. So instead of having an emergent situation for both of those things, they, we just noted intraoperatively fixed it without a problem and the child continues to do well four years later also before we started working together we were doing very few thyroids um now there is not a single pediatric thyroid patient in the region that doesn't get our hands on it so now the care is basically funneled into the people who do the most of it any cancer gets funneled right to saint jude our endocrinologists uh, have access to both hospitals. At, and they're, they're two separate departments, but they they have patients at both hospitals. And our oncologists are credentialed at both hospitals as well. So everything is very, very unified specifically for that. And there, that's actually funneled all the pediatric head and neck to, that's not thyroid, to ENT. Again, it's choosing your partner, having people check their egos at the door. I mean, we were surgeons, we all have some sort of ego, but ultimately we're working on children and we're looking out for children. And I think it benefited everybody to do this. It's research wise, um, pleasure to go into work wise. I think Brandon Isaacson's one who told me it's much better to go to work with your friends than with your colleagues. And I feel like I go to work with my friends every day. You know, and I, I think that a part of the building of teams is, is finding those people that are good collaborators too. There are some very good uh, surgeons, some very good physicians out there that just don't necessarily want to kind of collaborate. They want to do the cases that they do, and they and and that's that's fine. There's other other folks that really enjoy that kind of collaborative treatment and surgical uh, atmosphere, and finding those people that can bring a skill set to the table, but also recognize the skills in others and value that, and be able to work in harmony with each other. That's what really allows these teams to grow. Gopi, you mentioned your 
your work in the, in the skull base area. I work, um, have worked for over 10 years now, very closely with my neurosurgery colleague. I know I've been watch, reading all your papers. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, you're too kind. You're I know, too you're, kind. I know yeah. your name prior to yeah, this. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always, I've, I've always uh, just really valued that relationship. Um, I've learned a, a, you know, a lot from, uh, from Tord, from Dr. Alden, my neurosurgery colleague. But I know in those skull-based cases, you need that neurosurgeon. You really need their skill set to, to be able to kind of execute those cases. But I also really have valued how he's always uh, shown an appreciation for what I bring to, to the table there in terms of the, the approach and allowing him to do what he needs to do better. And, uh, and when you find, find people like that, so like Dr. Alden, my neurosurgery colleague, or on the, on the head neck side, Danny mentioned my, um, uh, partner on the adult, uh, head neck side, Rajiv Patel. Same thing. He comes over with his, with his skill set when we have a particularly challenging, uh, uh, head neck tumor. Perhaps it's someone who needs a free flap and he comes over with this tremendous skill, skill set that is super helpful. But he can show that appreciation for what I can bring to the table, too, in terms of uh, having that familiarity with some of the, the kids' anatomy and so on. So finding people, people like that that are good uh, collaborators, both in the operating room and out of the operating room in terms of planning, that is super key. I think you, you, also, you asked a really tough question, uh, Gopi, about what do you do in the arena where you have lots of surgeons who all want to do the same thing, too? And I, I really think that it takes institutional commitment to developing focused expertise. And if you're in a situation where, for example, the general surgeons are, are doing all of the thyroid surgery and it's going well and there are no complications, well, you got to ask yourself what's best for the kids in some ways too. We have a lot to bring to the table as otolaryngologists, there's no question. But I, I still think we have to keep in mind too that in, in limited volume diseases, we need focused expertise. We've been really, really fortunate to build a very collaborative program here in, in Texas Children's where there are two otolaryngologists and two pediatric surgeons in the thyroid team. And we're committed to double scrubbing every case. Every case has two surgeons, two of the four of us. And I, I think that pediatric thyroid care in particular is a wonderful model for developing team coaching in surgery. Every time I'm the primary surgeon, the secondary surgeon has something to teach me because they're watching me operate. They're watching what I do. And in any limited volume surgery, that is invaluable. That experience is invaluable. Just this week, uh, my partner, Dr. Dimashkin, and I did a, a case, a very complicated, uh, advanced uh, thyroid cancer, with a lot of tricky decision-making. And I, you know, the case was about a six-hour case, a five-hour case. And I think that the 30-second observation I made in the case that helped her, that was something she wasn't necessarily thinking about, changed the outcome of the case for her. And I think she's done the same thing for me a magnitude of times more. And so I, I think really you got to look at what's best for the kids and, and see every one of these limited volume cases as a, a resource that needs to be milked for all it's worth. Additionally, I, I think we all have to be realistic that getting the cases into your center is, is the starting point. And if these cases are being done elsewhere without the volume and the tumor boards, it's not as good for the kids. And frankly, having partners from otolaryngology and pediatric surgery working collaboratively is going to do better to take care of your referral base and to take care of your community than having either side go it alone. So um, you talk about institutional commitment, and I think that's important because for many of us, we have, especially in academics, you have the university as like, so your department, as well as the children's uh, hospital. How do you, I guess, build a relationship 
uh, with your children's hospital or, you know, it sounds like from the very beginning, you need your department, your division leadership to believe in this and to see that vision. And then it can kind of come together. So once you have that support, what kind of relationship or do you need to form to have the support of your actual children's hospital? Do, when, do you have to present plans? You know, how does, because eventually they're going to be, you're going to want them to do like patient outreach and, you know, using their name, right, to build a center of excellent, excellence. Um, tell me how that process is. Is that difficult? Is that something that, you know, once you have your uh, division chief support, it just kind of falls together? Well, no, I, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good question because, because once you sort of, it, it depends on how big you want to take it too. Because once you have, when you have your division support, you can start to, to get that sort of experience within your, your division. But you ultimately need a more, more broad support amongst the hospital. You have to advertise it to get those regional patients in and so on. And, and some of that comes to, to in, in my hospital, the vision of the surgeon in chief. So we've just had a, a change and that we've had the, uh, our current surgeon in chief retired, a new surgeon in chief come in. And this is, you know, it's, it's so conversations that need to be had too about what are, what are the, you know, the visions, visions there. But I can't say that I've been, been fortunate that all of my goals from the standpoint of like the head and neck program and the, and the skull base program have been, have been supported at that level. So I guess maybe I've just kind of taken that that for granted because I'd love to hear if, if some others have had challenges uh, in that standpoint. St. Jude's a little good at advertising, so I have not had any uh, problems with them <laughs> in that regard. For Le Bonner, um, we waited a couple of years until our numbers were up and they said, hey, we, we've been doing this much. I think it's time to start marketing. And when you present a plan to them, I've been very fortunate to, I can actually knock on the CEO's door and said, hey, we got this program, let's make it a nationally recognized program. And, and they're, they've been nothing but supportive. So I, I'm very fortunate with uh, the relationships I have within the support that I've been getting. I think pediatric head and neck cancer, pediatric cancer in general, is something that everyone wants to help with and everyone wants to advertise that they help with and everyone wants to support if you're doing it well. I actually think that for kids, that may be more of a liability in some ways because there may be some times that they're getting care that is really well-intentioned and really well-advertised without necessarily the right resources to do it. And I have to say, one of my, one of my personal heroes is a, a surgeon who sent me a patient from their hospital, nowhere nearby here, who really needed the care of our center. And the hospital was really pushing on this surgeon to do the, the, the surgery. And he went through back channels to get to me to say, hey, listen, we, we need to send this to your program. I want the best for this kid. And that surgeon is like one of my personal heroes. And so I, I think if the hospital, I, I think it's an easy sell to the hospital to, to, to build a pediatric head and neck tumor program if the volume is there. This is, this is something that children's hospitals, especially quaternary children's hospitals should be doing. Um, and, and I, like Jeff, have had nothing but wonderful support from Texas Children's. And that's, that's been a blessing. Well, as we uh, start to wrap up, are there any final uh, pearls or pitfalls or lessons from your experiences in building these practices and your relationships that you've formed? Because it's, I love the team coaching. I mean, you know, to have somebody that you operate with, right? I, I, you know, 
and operate with a colleague. I, I can't remember the last time. Usually we're operating with maybe our fellow, our residents, but to actually be doing a case um, with a colleague and a colleague maybe even from a different uh, specialty is pretty, I'm sure, extremely rewarding and lots of different opportunities for growth. So that's why I've learned from this. But uh, what yeah. if, can you tell me any vital pitfalls or, or lessons or pearls that you have? Well, one thing that comes to mind as you're saying that, I, I, I never got around to writing this paper, but I thought it would be fun to write a commentary paper when I was five years into practice to, to write something where the title would have been something like, five years of residency or five years as an attending, where did I learn more? That at the end of the day, when you're done with residency and done with fellowship, you're not done learning. You're always learning. And that's one of the really great parts about this career. I mean, I'm, I'm 45 years old and I feel very young in this, this field. I have friends who are in other fields that at, at 45, they feel like, oh boy, I've been doing this job a long time. I'm thinking about having a career change. I'm like, boy, I'm still, I still feel like young and fresh in this, always still learning everything else. So, so you have to find, find ways to enjoy it, find ways to, to learn from your colleagues, learn from your fellows, learn from your, your uh, from everybody. So I guess my tip for pe people who want to do stuff like this, it's collaborative by its nature. So get involved, get communicating with, uh, with people. Danny, Tony, and I routinely have folks email us, reach out to us, um, wanting to talk about how can we get involved. We get folks involved with uh, committees. We meet up at meetings and, uh, and just keep, the, keep those conversations uh, uh, going and find, find ways to continue to, to collaborate and uh, learn while you teach. You know, we're all involved with teaching. We have residents and we have, have fellows, but, but find ways that you can continue to to focus your, your skills and experience as well. Never be afraid to ask for advice. These are again, limited volumes. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've, I've started doing this a lot more frequently. I don't know if I'm more comfortable or I'm just getting more challenging cases, but I, I usually call Danny and Jeff, just a group text and I'll text them like, Hey, have you guys seen this before? And whoever says yes, that's who I'll call. And then we'll, we'll work through it together because uh, chances are with their experience, they've usually seen one or two of the things that I'm seeing for the first time. Because when you're dealing with this, something weird is going to pop up that's not published, that's not out in the, in the ether. So um, I, I've gotten much more comfortable asking for advice. And uh, hopefully as I continue to get older and get more experience, I'll continue to feel less comfortable. I, I would echo what these guys are saying. And I, I think back to when I was in college, one of my mentors told me, hey, listen, when, when you want to get married, don't, don't go look for a wife. Look to see who's running at your side towards the same vision. And that's the person you partner with. And, and I would say the same thing in these programs is to look and see who shares your vision, both locally and then like we've been discussing uh, nationally at other centers and, and run together and build collaboratively. There's plenty of room for everyone to work in a very collaborative fashion. And I would say, don't be afraid to put yourself at the bottom of the recognition pack when it comes to building these programs. The more that you can elevate your nurses, your, your ancillary staff, the more you can let them shine, uh, the better it'll be for your programs. Well, thank you all so much, Danny, Jeff, Tony, for your time um, and all your wisdom. I feel super inspired. Um, thank you to our listeners for stopping by. If you're a returning listener, thanks for coming back. And for anybody new, thank you for checking us out. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback. Reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on, please reach out. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, 
make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.